Welcome to the 18th episode of Live Sound Bootcamp. Uh, I'm Joe Santarpia. I'm Ryan John. And I'm Brendan Draper. This is going to be the third part of your Building a Front of House Mix uh, series. Um, hopefully the last one, uh, if we can get through it all today. Um, we've gone through kind of the beginnings and gain structure and uh, you know channel setting up and setting up your, your show file if you're on a digital desk, all that. Um, you know, all that through kind of EQing and reasons for EQing. Um, today we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, dynamics processing and um, output routing, like, you know, using groups and things like that, um, as well as VCAs. And we should probably talk about effects, too. You know, somehow we didn't put that into our list of things we need to talk about, but I, yeah, they exist. Yeah, you know, tack, tack those on as well, you know. Yeah, like I said, yeah. hopefully this is hopefully the third and final. But you know, who, you never know. Nah, you know, yeah. considering that that both you and I pretty much full time front of house, and right now I guess Brendan is mostly monitors, but also pretty often in front of house. I feel like this could turn into an entire season of just front of house mixing techniques. Wow, could you hear that? I mean, we shouldn't. We definitely shouldn't do that. You hear that? <laughs> what you're excited about this? <laughs> it's 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 one of the more fun jobs in the realm yeah. of audio. I don't know. All right. So top of this list though is, is EQs. Right. And for me, the next step is jumping into gating. Yeah. I agree. Um, should, I guess we should just define, you know, the controls on a gate. So uh, Brendan, you want to just hit me with, you know, what a gate does and what are some of the basic controls? Yeah, sure. So a gate um, reduces the quieter signal level. So when, when you apply it, you've got a few main controls, including, ratio, threshold, and range. And what those do is that when your signal goes below a certain threshold, it the gate will close or decrease the level of the signal by a certain ratio and by a certain mm -hmm. range. So let's say your ratio is 10 to 1. Every, every time it's 1 dB below the threshold, the gate reduces it by 10 dB more. Right, 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 and then and the range is the maximum amount yeah. that it'll reduce it by. Yeah, range is. And maximum. I guess we do also. I guess we do also want to point out that if you want to be super technical about it, a gate is either open or closed. Once you have a ratio there, I think we're just talking expanders officially, oh, okay. right? Because I I think at that point it's officially an expander as opposed to a gate. A gate, if you want to be super technical, mm -hmm. when it's closed, it's zero signal. When it's open, it is signal. Infinity so to mean, one, huh? Yeah, infinity to, oh, infinity okay. to Interesting. So if the ratio is any higher or less than infinity, then it's an expander. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I always always thought of it as like a compressor versus limiter thing, where it's like if it's over a certain amount, maybe, then it was. But, but well, that's, that is you interesting. you know what? Maybe, maybe one of our listeners can actually define that. My understanding is that the gate is actually closed, period. Yeah. An expander can reduce it by an amount. And that's because I, re I recall that there were some hardware gates that I had back in the day that didn't have ratio or range controls. They were literally just closed uh -huh. or open. Um, but I think, you know, pretty early on in music, that became a ratio and range thing because literally shutting signal off and turning it back on is not musical at all. No, so, no, it hurts. And, and I guess that's where also the additional controls of attack, hold, and release come in, right? Where... Attack is how fast it will respond to closing. Mm -hmm. Hold is a minimum amount of time that, or sorry, how fast it responds to opening is attack. Hold is a minimum amount of time it stays open and releases how fast it 
closes back up again. Right. So right. if you've got a uh, infinity to one ratio, and then your range is less than or more than the maximum amount, does that make it an expander? More still? than infinity. More than infinity. Or less than infinity, rather. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I don't think any expanders allow you to do ratios that high. I think that uh, you know most of them max out around something like twenty to one. You know, okay. if you're if you're talking gate, you don't have a range because the range is infinity. It is like it mm. is off. Hmm. Um, but you know, let's let's be realistic. Semantics. Actual use case and real people. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about gate slash expanders, and they have ratios and ranges. Right. And that's those. Those are the controls there. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Joe, I mean, what what channels do you gate? Um, you know, starting out, you know, and, and we're going earlier in the input list here. Uh, you know, so there are some drums you probably want to gate, uh, depending on what's going on, depending on the sound you're looking for. Uh, kick drums. Uh, some people like to gate snares. I don't personally typically uh, gate a snare um, and then you know toms um, you know and the reasons uh, range from from the most basic uh, you know allowing there to be like uh, a good amount of low end in the in the kick drum or in the toms that would normally feed back but then you know gating it in order to kind of control that a little bit more especially if they're playing a little bit busier and um, uh, that sort of thing um, another another you know, use for a gate that maybe is a little bit less talked about is comes down to like transient shaping. And that comes down to that, you know, mm -hmm. attack and hold and release stuff where you, especially with the attack on something like a kick drum, you can kind of dial it back and uh, really shape how the attack sounds. Um, right. You know, right. It, it'll, it'll change the frequency content straight up. You know, you'll, you can get, more top end or less top end depending on where that attack is um and just a, a totally different feel altogether so very, very powerful tool in that regard right so yeah, th th that's an interesting point to make actually because that is something that i have in the past automated on a snapshot by snapshot basis so that you know ballady type songs yeah the gate on a kick drum opens slower so it yeah. doesn't have that clicky attack yeah. instead it's a lot more kind of round and pillowy if you will absolutely and then you know you go back to the big pop songs it's it's the attack super fast and if it's you know metal and you need that clicky sound attack is super fast you know that kind of thing yeah yeah absolutely um you know and then moving on from that uh you know there's like corrective gating so if something's noisy and you can get around uh, you know like you know a noisy uh, a hissy guitar amp that you know there's a quiet part in the song or something like that and it's just overpowering um you know depending on what you can get away with and you got to be careful because uh you know it, it, it can very quickly become unmusical um something like that yeah and then um you know more advanced and maybe we won't talk about this one as much but uh uh you know the pse uh type scenario which is the the uh, primary source enhancer type scenario, which is which is more or less a side chain filtered, uh, very gentle expander for something like elite. that gets used on vocals. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, um, triggered by the voice to get rid of some of that stage sound um, when when they're off the microphone. I think the, I think the good point to make here is that the, the the general function of the gate is to clean up extraneous signal. Mm -hmm. right. And if you've got an instrument that's not playing, if you can remove all the extra bleed that's happening in that time, you ultimately clean up your whole mix for the things that are playing at that time. Uh, and kick drum is a great example because if you're doing something like boosting low end in it, um, 
you know, low end in general is pretty omnidirectional. Mm -hmm. So if you don't gate that, extra low end from subwoofers, extra low end from the back of the PA, extra low end from guitar amps, extra low end from bass amps, extra low end from wedges, all of that is going to end up coming back through that kick drum microphone Mm -hmm. and ultimately kind of feeding back into itself. It might not ring out like feedback, but it's going to make the low end very loose. Very loose. So when the kick happens, the kick sound and the impact will last for a lot longer than you typically want obviously when you're in the context of something a little more jazzy or something like that maybe you do want that kind of long Mm -hmm. softer sound but if you've got a mix that's busy and has a lot going on the tighter you can make that low end the more impact it has so Mm -hmm. for me gating a kick drum is about keeping that kick punch incredibly short and incredibly tight because the shorter i keep that the more space i have for my bass guitar to fill in that space mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh, and i do gate gate snare drums uh I don't, I don't know how you get away with not doing that joe you're magical <laughs> uh well you know yeah i don't know it's you know you, yeah you're magical that's it uh, mic placement uh you know and then i don't know maybe you relying a little bit less on the hi-hat mic also, also, my drummer doesn't have a crash. He just has oh, a ride. That'll help. So too. it's basically like hi hat mic help. isn't being used. He plays the hi hat relatively quiet, and you know, there's nothing. There's no symbols on that side aside from the hi hat. Anyway. Gotcha. Yeah, Brendan, you you gate your snare drum. Uh, I I do most of the time. Sometimes, you know, there's been times where, just depending on the sound of the drum and the and how the drummer plays, I don't find it necessary. And right. probably if I was in like a bigger, maybe in a bigger hall, that that might cha- it it might change depending on the size of the room. But right. in like a five hundred person club, like the independent where I work a lot, I sometimes if if the snare drum just sounds great, I'm like I'm not going to mess with it. You know, like I don't hear a benefit from putting a gate on it. Also, depending on yeah. depending on what gates I have available, I might just like forgo it. Because there is that too. Yeah, yeah. there's that, 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 that scenario has happened to me where I've tried the gate that I have at my disposal and it just doesn't make it sound better. It's, it's so, just not working right. Yeah, I just go with, well, you know, a little bit of go ahead, Joe. Let me let me flip yeah. it on you, Ryan. You know, I, I find with specifically with snare drums, I always have a hard time with it sounding unmusical, especially if there's a lot of cymbals. You know, how do you, and again, maybe we're getting a little deep here, but how do you, you know, how do you account for that? I guess it all depends on what your intent is, right? If if you want to control the length of your snare drum, a gate is the only really good tool you have for doing that outside of, you know, the snare itself. You know, getting a snare that rings longer or getting a snare that rings shorter, right? Yeah. And in the context of my average show, as we go between ballads and, and pop songs and big rock songs, the tone of the snare does need to change. But we may not have three or four snares on stage. We might only have two. So we can't control it in the same way uh, with no gate. So if I've got an ultra-tight poppy song, but we're still using the same snare that we were using on the big rock song, I will gate it, and I'll gate it very tightly so it is shorter. So it almost has that kind of white, noisy snare sound that is on pop records. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So totally. for, for me, it's about tone shaping. But... At the same time, you got to remember that when you do gate, you potentially lose things like ghost notes or, or side sticks or things like that. So you yeah. need to be very aware of how tight you're doing this and who you're doing it to as well. Because 
everybody on stage can also feel the PA. So if you've got a drummer who who likes nuance and and is is very proud and excited about the nuance that he puts into his playing, you don't want to gate that out. Mm-hmm. Not only because you're missing it in the show, but your drummer is also going to hate you because he's going to hear that it's not coming through the PA. <laughs> and it, it's going to turn into a bad relationship, you know? So you do need to be really on this in terms of, like, communication with your artists, your musicians, and all that to make sure that what you're doing reflects them best. Yeah. But the other thing is that how you gate something like a snare is also related to how much you may or may not compress your snare. Uh-huh. If you compress it really hard well, then you're going to be bringing up all the stuff that is not gated out, right. like a lot, and you're going to make a mess of a lot of things. If you don't compress it much, you can absolutely get away with much less gating. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing for me, that uh, my compression settings change from song to song, and on some of those big pop songs, I want the snare to be really poppy and attacky. And I guess when, when we jump into the compression section, we can get into some of the details on how that should work, but uh, with uh, hard compression, I kind of have to gate it better. Go ahead, Brendan. Uh, I just wanted to underline the point of like going with what the music, I guess this is a monitor thing, but going with what the musician, especially the drummer wants in terms of gating on their drums. Like most of the times when I'm in a monitor position, I know we're talking about front of house, but they prefer ungated drums if they're playing through like a speaker, you know, just, just as an aside. Yeah. You know, another thing is that uh, gating, Oh, man. Uh, it's like the first stage of gating is your mic choice and your mic placement, you know? Mm-hmm. So you got to remember, a snare drum is really loud. When a drummer hits a snare loud, you're talking 110, 120, 130 decibels, depending. Mm-hmm. So at that point, your signal's going to be way louder than the bleed that's in it. So unless you're compressing it down, you know, you've got a good ratio there of noise to, to signal. So if you want to make sure you capture all those nuances like ghost notes and side sticks and all that stuff without, uh, uh, without kind of manipulating too much, you know, snapshots and things like that. Just make sure that your snare drum is pointed away from everything else. Your snare mic. You know, point it so that there's a null at your hi-hat. Or, yeah, sorry, not snare drum. Yeah. <laughs> if you point your snare drum away from everything, your I don't know what that would like help. That, yeah. <laughs> but you get the point though, right? You yeah. know, make sure that mic is picking up as much snare as possible, as little other stuff as possible, mm-hmm. and maybe even pick a mic that has a tighter pickup pattern. Yeah, only because of that reason. There, there are a lot of the, you know going to the recording world. There are a lot of arguments that you know a snare mic, a snare top mic, isn't even necessarily about the tone of the mic. It's about the rejection, the off-axis rejection. You know, hmm. um, I could totally see that. Yeah. yeah, and then another you know another thing to be aware of that is that little you know if it's like a car cardioid or a hypercardioid that little node in the back you know you also don't want the back of the mic directly facing the hi-hat because there's a little node right. there that will that picks up you know right so yeah if you've got a hypercardioid or a supercardioid or a figure eight yeah the back of the mic is just as important as the front of the mic right in fact that kind of jumps into the, the next thing is, is toms as you mentioned i gate toms yeah. and i i do it because toms otherwise literally just ring from <laughs> stage shaking from kick drums mm, yeah. and all that. it just loosens everything up and um on my uh, normal artist, we've got Beta 98s on the toms. And I used to hate those mics, but I hate those mics. they are hypercardioid, and they've got a lobe behind them. But yeah. what that means is that kind of 45 degrees off of, off of axis on like kind of the back side of it um, is a total null. 
So if you have symbols on either side of it, if you place mm. it so that kind of 45 degrees from the back is where that symbol is, they end up super clean mm. because of that null position. If you make it so that the back of the mic faces the symbol, you're going to pick up a heap of that symbol. Yeah, and that's just you know a result of the, the pickup pattern of that mic. Right. I hated that mic for years, and somehow I'm completely converted. I'm like, all right, cool, it works. All right, maybe I'll, maybe I'll check it out. Give it another shot with that in mind. I used it in a stu- studio session recently, and I was, I was a fan. Yeah, you liked it? Yeah. Nice, nice, man. So to, to kind of jump back to snare drum, though, uh, one thing I do is my snare top gate and my snare bottom gate uh, have different settings where my bottom gate is often longer than my top gate. Mm. I don't know if you guys mess with that at all. I That's don't do good. that too much, but I do key one of... I, sometimes I'll key the snare bottom off the snare top. Like, I'll use that as the... Right, so explain to me this key thing. Well, a key uh, means... <laughs> a key input... Does it open the door? It does open the All door. Right, stupid the, joke. Stupid the gate. joke. I'm sorry, dude. It opens the gate. Ooh, it's oh, a key to the lock on the gate? Oh, yeah. God. Can we We're put a sound there, effect? We? we gotta put a sound effect in there. Like <laughs> a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, anyways, All right, tell me about the key. How do you use key, this? The key. Well, anyways, the key is like using another signal to control when your gate opens or closes or what when, when the uh, to to yeah. use that as the signal instead of the signal the channel that the, the gate is on it's like you're yeah. using a signal to trigger the gate but you're actually affecting a different channel's audio right there you go perfect yeah. so in this context you're you're saying you're using the snare top mic to trigger opening the snare bottom signal right yeah that way there's less like kick drum triggering of the snare bottom. Right, because yeah, snare bottom often has heaps of kick drum in it because you're, I don't know, inches away from where the kick drum physically is. Right. So if you're only using level, every time he hits the kick, it's going to open. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I do the same thing too because if, if the drummer's playing really lightly on the snare, you know, ghost notes or rolls or things like that, the sticks hit the batter head, which is close to the snare top. And yes, that en- energy transfers downwards to the, the resonant head, you know, with the, with the strainer on it. But it is easier and, for me, more accurate to trigger that snare bottom off of the top at that point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I do the same thing as well. But, yeah, I like keeping the bottom open a little bit longer because when I want snare decay, mm-hmm. the sound of a snare drum, to me, comes from snare bottom. The top being open longer doesn't really give me much. So I can keep the top ultra tight and have the sound of the snare last a tiny bit longer from the bottom. Yeah, that, I know that's a little unconventional too, but hey. I think I think that makes sense. I mean, that's the resonant head, right? Even on a snare drum, that's where you're kind of right. getting the the body of it from. It also kind of is what makes the snare sound real, you know, like it's actually a yeah. snare. And so I, I don't know that to, to me anyway. Yeah, it's a personal. You thing. know what's you know what's funny? You know, now that we spent twenty minutes talking about snares, um, <laughs> I. <laughs> You know, when I started out doing this, no, it is, it is. Well, look, I'll I'll put it this way. When I see a show, or sorry, hear a show, that I'm like, this sounds amazing, one of the first things that usually stands out to me is the snare drum. And it's usually, I'm like, dang, that snare sounds amazing. And subsequently, the whole show sounds amazing (laughs) because of it. (laughs) But I feel that way when I just listen to music, too. For sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, uh, To me, an, uh, an amazing sounding snare drum is 
and it's going to sound weird, it's like an emotional experience. Like, it mm-hmm. feels more, it makes the music feel more real and more intense and, you know, more gripping, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but what I was going to say is, I know that when I started out, I used to use probably 80, 90% snare top as my snare sound. And now I've gone so far the other direction. I'm probably like, I don't know, 40% snare top and 60% snare bottom. And that's just a thing that's just changed over time. And I don't know if that's a thing that, you know, music in general now sounds that way. And I've kind of followed that. Or if it's just that that's my personal taste. But I like my snare drum sounds better now using the snare bottom and i spend so much more time making sure my snare bottom mic sounds good whereas before i used to just stick something there and he'd hit it and it would be like and i'd be like cool that's snare bottom and i didn't care and that was that was okay with me yeah i don't know how you guys feel about this well i think i i think i mentioned this like in an earlier episode but a lot of times in a smaller room i'll only put a snare bottom mic and like not go with the snare top like every once in a while Hmm. um if i don't have enough mics because you know I can't get the snare bottom sound doesn't come out as much in the room, you know, as the snare top seems to. Mm -hmm. So if I mic the snare bottom, then I can get that sound in the room. Joe, what's, what's your feeling there? What's your relationship like between top and bottom? I feel like this is still relevant to building a front house mix. So we don't have to like shy away from this. Right, right, right. I, I, I I still, you know, um, I, I use them both. I, I still rely on the top for the snap and like the, the butt of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know the bottom's in there for sure, doing its thing. Um, I do have a question for you guys though, and this is hopefully this isn't too far. Uh, what's your favorite snare bottom mic? Uh oh. Mm. Go ahead, Brendan. You can you can go first. I don't know, fifty-seven. Okay, Ryan. Well, that was a boring answer. Come on, <laughs> hey, you know, whatever, whatever. Hey, man, if you it's love it, you words. love it. If you love it, you love it. Yeah. Um, I I am picky with my snare bottoms now. As I said, you know, I now try and get more than 50% of my snare sound from the snare bottom. Right. So depending on the sound of the drum itself, my snare bottom mic might change. Right. I love the Biodynamic M88s. Okay. I think they are amazing. Interesting. Um, to me, it's a very natural sounding microphone. It doesn't have a hype top end, which most kind of modern microphones do. They yeah. hype the top end. And to me, a hype top end on a snare bottom, which is already super bright, doesn't make it better. It right. actually makes it less pleasant and yeah. you end up kind of undoing it all yeah you kind of want so, to dark you, that, I, I would even say that's totally. kind of a darker mic yeah that's yeah, it is it is and and that's how i like things i i, I like on a bright uh source put a dark mic on right. a dark source put a bright mic and you end up reasonably evening even yeah yeah, yeah totally. with you know a couple exceptions yeah. isn't that but like yeah, something like that that was ahead. like uh glenn john's thing right like kind of balancing the like the the quality of the instrument with the quality of the microphone and kind of going the opposite direction was that do you it guys makes know sense, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't remember if it was Glenn John specifically, but I mean, that is a thing that is kind of a classic recording method mm-hmm. that I feel like people these days maybe just don't remember or, or whatever, but also modern microphones are all kind of hyped in the top end. Mm-hmm. And I, it's just kind of a, it's just a thing. I, Go ahead. I, I ask because, you know, and, and I, it's similarly, I, I, I love the Bayer M201. For, for both top and bottom, really, but I I, find I, I love the two hundred one as well. Fantastic mic, uh, and but I find that it's one of the most usable bottom snare mics. You know that mm-hmm. it's crazy. It just sounds so na- you know it, it's so it's so easy for that to, for that stuff to get nasty. You know that like three to five k 
zone absolutely it gets just so mm -hmm. fucked but um yeah cool i'll have to try an m88 um two sometime but also the common mic that people put underneath it you know a 57 yeah. a beta 57 that kind of stuff that also that mic itself boosts that area exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. so you're taking this area that's already potentially nasty and boosting it even more by putting a mic that has a hype in that top end mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah as far as i'm concerned a darker mic on snare bottom helps me out yeah. also i will say on eq on snare bottom i boost a bunch of low end on the snare bottom and start rolling off the top and i don't boost low end on the snare top hmm. interesting because to me the roundness and thickness of a snare drum is actually the snare bottom and then the top i use really for stick attack and kind of mm -hmm. maybe a touch of that ring you know the body there mm -hmm. but the thickness the roundness comes to me from snare bottom and that's how uh, as i said before for years and years and years and years, I used to use snare top primarily for 90% of the snare sound, and I would do pretty much all the EQing there, and I'd slide in just enough snare bottom to make it seem like a snare drum. But then when the drummer started going like really ham and like really into it, it just sounded like a popping sound and never really had the real bigness of a snare drum. So I kind of shifted in this direction, and now I'm super happy with it. I don't know. Give it a shot. Maybe you guys will like it too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think we should retitle yeah. this episode "Snare Drum Technique." Snare, <laughs> snare drums, right? Um, no, let, yeah. Now, let, that, now that we're three hours into talking about snare drums, <laughs> right? No, let's <laughs> let's move on. Let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about compression. That's fun. That's going to be another three hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I could talk about this for a while. So, Joe, why don't you hit me with you know what are the controls in a compressor and you know what's the, what's the basic functionality there? Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's it's basically the opposite of a gate. Um, you have uh, any, I guess, uh, combination of basically the same parameters, but it's going to act differently within those parameters. So, you know, you have ratio, threshold, um, makeup gain is another one, um, which we'll get mm -hmm. into here, but and also attack and release. So there's a threshold, and once the signal crosses that threshold uh, level-wise, uh, instead, instead of opening, it's going to attenuate. So it's going to do the opposite. Right. So and and it's going to do that depend um, you know depending on what the ratio is. So if the ratio is two to one, um, for every d for every two dB that signal cross you know goes over that threshold, it will allow one to pass. Um, attack is how yep. long that takes <laughs> to happen. Allow it to pass. Allow it to pass. <laughs> Nothing shall pass. You um, shall not pass. Attack. Yeah, is, that's what I was going for. <laughs> yeah, uh, attack is how long it takes to happen, and release is how long uh, it's it kind of takes to return to zero to let go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's all there's also one more parameter that I guess it just just doesn't get talked about much, and that's knee. Mm. And yeah. if you guys have seen images of what. Uh, you know the the kind of x y axis compressor image looks like where it's you know diagonal up and you know kind mm -hmm. of sloped off at the threshold. The idea of a knee is that um, a hard knee means exactly as it hits that threshold is where it starts uh, adding this exact ratio. As you soften a knee, what it does is it softly goes into that ratio. So maybe a dB or two below that uh, knee. Uh, below that threshold, it's got a lower ratio, and it, the ratio kind of goes up as you hit that, um, that threshold point. Interesting. So sometimes you'll notice that on a compressor, if you go from hard knee to soft knee, you might actually see it compressing even more, but that's because it's starting to compress a little bit lower than the threshold, but just at a lower ratio. Mm. Yeah, so that's kind of the function of it. So if you want compression to be a little bit more transparent, you can go softer knee because it kind of rolls in the ratio. If you want it to be 
obvious or aggressive, you can go with a hard knee and exactly as it bumps over that threshold, it just starts clamping down on it. Yeah. I feel like that's a control that nobody really talks about in compression, but I feel like it has is super useful. It's got great totally. purpose. It's well it's not it's not on a lot of compressors. I feel like it's only on probably, you know, a small percentage. Yeah, that's it. true. That's true. There's a lot of compressors that don't have that. And Especially I hardware. guess another point is there's there's many different types of compression. They all do functionally the same thing, but yeah, you got, you know, FET, uh, VCA-based, Verimu, like all sorts of different types, and they all have different kind of character signatures, if you will, yeah. but functionally, they do exactly what, Joe, you just explained. Mm-hmm. Right. So for you, what's a common channel you'll compress? For me? <laughs> yeah. For <laughs> uh, <laughs> moi? Moi? Uh, okay. Oh, man, such a loaded question. Uh, everything. No, nothing. Actually, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> do you have a compressor on your master bus? Uh, d- yeah, depending on the show, you know. Um, All right, then, yes, everything. <laughs> right, everything. <laughs> you know, there's, there's in recording, people talk about the, the, the whole top-down mixing thing, which you, you base is the, yeah. the concept of compressing starting with your master bus, you know, and then, and then going down or, to, or like... processing starting with your master bus. Yeah. That's probably a thing we should throw into an episode, too, things like top-down mixes, mixing and all that. It's, as far as recording stuff goes, uh, you know, it's, it's helped me out a lot, you know, in, in certain scenarios. Um, I, I, yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. Uh, what channels do you compress? Well, um, in live sound, I feel like you're going to be a little bit more heavy handed in compressing because when, you know, when, when you're dealing with a, you know, a large PA system that's amplifying the music that, that much, um, you don't want things to blast people. So there's going to be, right. uh, there's going to be, you know, corrective compression to kind of uh, limit people from getting their heads blown off, depending on what's going on on mm-hmm. stage. And then <laughs> kind there, of a safety compression, exactly. Yeah. And then there's like kind of you know general tonal compression. So okay. um, you know, uh, starting with I guess the most important channel, you know, y- your vocal. Um, even if you don't mm-hmm. need tonal compression for the vocal and live sound like if it's you know if, if the singer is pretty loud most of the time and and it, and everything's pretty level um and you can just kind of keep the gain right there and ride the fader you still you still might want some sort of high ratio fast attack uh compression to uh, just in case just in case they drop the mic or or scream way louder than they normally you know um mm. to prevent people from getting their freaking heads ripped off um same thing goes for like yeah. Same that, thing that like, reminds me of a yeah. That reminds me of, of of a time I had a very very quiet singer, and um, she she was tough because the crowd was often louder in her microphone than she was. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But right after that whole thing on the internet of like dropping the mic became a thing. Oh shit! Oh, she no. decided to do it at one show. And, you know, oh, she was no. just having fun. But yeah. I mean, her vocal gain is pinned. You know, her, her fader is up real hot and she's going through a bunch of effects just to get extra volume. And also the stage was like a bunch of cold fog, bunch of haze. Like it was a very kind of a vibe type show. Yeah. So I could more see a silhouette of her than I could see her face. So I just saw her stick out her hand. I didn't know it was coming. <laughs> she <laughs> dropped that thing. <laughs> Everybody in the crowd jumped because it was that hot. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I, uh, I've learned since. Uh, yeah, Ma- uh, Mac, you know, Mac DeMarco is a, 
is notorious for this. You know, he is he's an extremely quiet singer. Same thing, you know, off in the crowd. One minute he's, you know, serenading you, like barely whispering this like gorgeous, you know, ballad. And then, and then the next he's uh, swinging the microphone around, smashing it into his head or, you know, the floor yeah. or you know, yeah, screaming that floor, he's saying. Clipping cymbals. Yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, protect, protect your, protect your ears and everyone, uh, and everyone in the audience's ears as well. With compression. You know, back in the day, I did, I did do that kind of emo rock circuit where it was like this thing where people would swing the mic around in circles, and you know, you'd have to tape the cable into it so it mm-hmm. wouldn't come out. Mm-hmm. But they'd be swinging it around, and they'd clip stuff all the time. They'd like, you know, clip an amp head or clip a cymbal or clip the floor. Yeah, yeah. You put a limiter on that vocal just so that people don't die when that happens. Uh, <laughs> um. You, you you know everyone knows how the how the SM58 is like notoriously durable, um, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I we, literally have hammered nails in with it. Yeah. Literally have done that. Yeah. I have. I have. Mac has destroyed. I believe you know somewhere in the range of forty SM58s in the last four years, and that's Dang. that's inc- that's not including uh, replacement grills. You know, each one, right, each right. one that goes down goes through about two or three grills before that, before it finally kicks. Before the, bucket, the mic you know? itself is finally dead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, don't, don't you know? You know, don't you know? He he has beamed one and first try completely taken the mic out. But um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's There's got to be like some kind of record like a for game, that. like a competition or something. Yeah, yeah. We're just yeah pushing the pushing it higher and higher. Um, anyway, so <laughs> that's one I reason. Guess to back to the point vocal compression um you know you you'd mentioned something here that i feel like we left out uh sorry brendan go ahead before i move move oh i was i was just thinking like is there anything about compressing vocals in live sound that maybe is different than from recorded like are you guys not pushing up your makeup gain as much as you know that's a you know that's a loaded question Okay. <laughs> I want to hear the answer. Well, yeah, though. I mean, you know, in in the studio, of course, feedback's not an issue unless right. you know you're sitting in the control room, singing into your microphone and blasting your your stuff back through the control room speakers, which is just not a thing. So yeah, you definitely do need to be a little bit more aware and reticent to hit you know crazy high ratios because the more you compress, the lower your gain before feedback ultimately becomes maybe not technically gain before feedback but mm-hmm. output volume before feedback yeah uh becomes because you've reduced the peaks down so much that your noise floor is higher yeah right. so yeah i mean you know joe said yes we we do compress more in live but i don't think you meant in a way such that you know we take more channels and we hit them with a real high ratio we kind of do what i would consider more safety compression in more places right mm-hmm. And also the difference between live and uh, studio is that in the studio, you might be mixing one song and you might be using a bunch of compressors all over the place. Live, I might be mixing 35 songs that night. So rather than chasing keyboard patches up and down with levels all the time, sometimes it can be easier to put a compressor there and the compressor will, will sort out some of the level changes that happen on the keyboards or on playback or on, you know, guitar patches, uh, effects pedals, that kind of stuff. You know, mm-hmm. you can allow compression to take care of some of those things for you so that you're not chasing everything up and down all the time. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, Joe, you mentioned something there when you, were, when you were talking about vocal compression, right? And you said uh, there's kind of a harmonic component, right? So one thing, one thing I want to break compression down to is there's, there's kind of three functions, right? One function is level control. If you want a channel to 
be controlled more in its volume as it's coming out of that channel, compression is a tool you can use. Mind you, the first tool you should use for that is your fader. Compression is the next one, you know? Yeah. But the next thing is compression has a time component. It's got an attack and release. And you can use compression for its time-based components to change the envelope of your sound itself. Mm -hmm. So if you, let's say, have a bass guitar or an acoustic guitar and you put a compressor on it that's quite high ratio, lots of gain reduction, if you make the attack very slow, when the guitar player strums that for the first time or hits that first note on the bass, the, f the start of that's going to pop out a lot because the attack is going to be so slow that the compressor doesn't grab onto it till after that start. You can use that as a tool on mm -hmm. purpose to make things kind of poke out. You can use it for things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. The obvious example is drums. Plenty of yep. people use that on drums to make the attack of the drum really, really poke out. Yeah, because mm -hmm. back then, that, that and you can do it the other way around too. I, totally, totally. Yeah. I use that. On, Go ahead for vocals too. Like I do a little slower attack so that the, if depends on how uh, intelligible the person talking or singing is. You know, you get the top of the word and then it clamps down a little bit mm -hmm. and then kind of a fast attack so that it releases before the end of the word. Um, that way you get, you know, human intelligibility of speech focuses on the, f the top and the, the start and the ends of words. So I think that helps right, a little right. bit. Yeah. Yeah. What was that thing that was kind of, uh, I mean, I guess it was passing around on the internet a while ago, but it, it's just a thing. Like you can write a whole paragraph down as long as you have the right number of letters, the correct first letter, the correct last letter. Anything in the middle oh, can yeah. be ignored because mm -hmm. the human brain can kind of fill it in and read the whole sentence anyways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that kind of works in audio too, exactly as you just said, Brendan. Like, you don't need, and this is going to sound probably offensive, you don't need all of it to be heard perfectly because the human brain can fill in the rest of it. Yeah, especially um, if you've heard the song before. There, especially if you've heard the song before. That's not to say you should bury your vocal or no. anything like that, but there are ways for you to get away with making really busy mixes sound less busy by using tricks like that um, to get away with. But the, uh, the third thing is harmonics, and this is what Joe is kind of jumping into, right? When a compressor is compressing, uh, especially in the analog world, it, this is going through an amount of circuitry that is using these timing components and all this other stuff that typically adds some amount of harmonic and for the most part the more compressor is compressing the more harmonic it adds mm -hmm. and harmonics uh i guess if we want to define it very literally are multiples of a fundamental frequency but that is kind of irrelevant the important thing to know is that harmonics can make something sound thicker or richer so as you compress something more you can often find that that instrument or that thing sounds thicker or denser and yeah. that's it's it's a bit of it's a bit of the harmonics plus the level control happening at the same time brendan go ahead yeah i've got a little question about that so when people i just kind of clarifying when people say as you compress more harmonics come out does that mean as the ratio gets higher or as the gain reduction the amount of gain reduction the amount reduction. of gain reduction Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess that's that's a good thing to to kind of point out. I mean, like your your threshold and your ratio are two different controls that do two different things, but ultimately, by the way you manipulate them, you could end up with the same amount of gain reduction, right? Mm -hmm. Right. There's there's so, more than one way to skin a waveform. 
Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. You're, you're spot on, man. But it all comes down to really what you're trying to do. Right. You could have, let's use vocals as an example again. You could put your threshold really low. So pretty much any time the singer is singing, it's compressing. Mm-hmm. And you could do that and have the ratio set really low so that when they're singing just a little bit, it's only compressing a little bit. But when they're singing a lot, the amount of gain reduction is actually quite high. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you've brought the dynamic range of the whole vocal from quiet to loud down by a bunch. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you could have the threshold set quite high and the ratio quite high. Then when the singer's singing quietly, compressor's not touching it. But then when the singer's singing loudly, the compressor's pulling it down a lot. And maybe you're achieving the same total amount of gain reduction, but the way you've done it is very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe, which do you do on a vocal? It really depends. It depends. Or on is it dependent? It depends on the compressor. Because, uh, you know, like you said, compressors have different characteristics and the audibility of of the reduction um, changes from compressor to compressor. So it, it, it ends up being, you know, for a vocal specifically, it ends up typically being whichever is kind of more transparent, but but giving it a little bit of that thickness while taming the level. I know it's very general and it's like, duh, mm-hmm. but that's, that's what's going on, you know? Um, Do you have kind of general settings that, you know, let's say you were doing a band you've never done before and you know that, they have a singer that sings at a healthy level. Is there kind of a starting point that you'd hit? You know, uh, like like attack release and and general gain reduction. You're targeting maybe. Ac- actually, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I follow I follow kind of the Fairchild 660 attack release stuff, which is like around I believe the attacks like around two milliseconds, and then release is like anywhere between uh, like uh, what is it like one one to two seconds, um, and then if I have a ratio control, I'll, I'll you know, I'm not. This probably isn't the 660, but uh, I'll go for like a two to one, um, tip, tip, typically to start. Yeah, I, and I, I, I do feel like a 660 is probably higher than that, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, st- I'll start with that because um, I don't know. As far as as far as tone shaping, again, not the uh, corrective like emergency uh, limiter kind of thing. Um, I find that. So do you set the do you set the threshold pretty low? Like like where do you usually like to have it start compressing on a vocal? Like st- when they're being quiet, when they're waiting till they're loud, or kind of like where are you? Um, you know, again for you know for for the tonal one, um, yeah, mid mid level, you know, mid, mid not not their quiet, you know, when they're singing at their quietest, it won't be touching it, but you know, once they get into their kind of normal healthy range, I'll go for some reduction, maybe you know. Uh, three four db you know and then and then as they get louder that'll that'll go more but um yeah i i typically again depending on the compressor find myself going for like a lower ratio uh move and then you know playing with the threshold to get the reduction personally are are you about the same brendan i'm similar to yeah i usually go for around a two to one ratio to start out with and then i start with my threshold pretty high and then kind of dial it in until you know like the louder you know, mid to louder range syllables are kind of getting around like maybe like three dB of reduction. And then when they go really loud, mm-hmm. then it jumps up to like six or something yeah. like that. But I, I, I try not right. to go too much higher than that in terms of gain reduction. There, there are, and that makes sense. There are other compressors I find that, you know, like I'm saying, different characters where like, you know, maybe I don't like how they sound reducing you know it just or just in general you know it's too it's too pumpy it's too breathy those are words you'll hear for you know uh bad compression artifacts um and with those it'll be the opposite it'll be like a higher ratio and a higher threshold so that it's 
leave it's leaving the signal alone for the most part and only mm. you know right and only hitting it in those times yeah 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 so in general do both of you guys kind of look at gain reduction as the target or do you look at yes um threshold and, and ratio as the target so ultimately you're kind of going for an amount of gain reduction when the singer is singing at some healthy level right, right. Yeah. right. yeah 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 is it is it about the same yeah. for you ryan or like how how does it work? Yeah, out it's usually? about it's about the same for me. I mean, exactly with what Joe just said, you know, there's there there are multiple uses for the compression, right? And if one of them might be level control. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you're going for the kind of character and the harmonic saturation part, I find that compressors at about, I don't know, minus three gain reduction have a character, whereas at minus six gain reduction have a different kind of character, whereas minus twelve they have a different kind of character. Mm-hmm. And I guess I pretty much always do compression on a vocal in multiple stages. So on the vocal itself, I might have something that just reduces the dynamic range by a little bit. And it might be 1.5 to 1, maybe 1.25 to 1 even. And the threshold is set so that pretty much any time they're singing, it's kind of just pulling the the whole thing together a little bit. Uh Mm. The gel. And then... yeah, exactly. Kind of the gel, just to just to pull it together a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it might go into a group that's got a character compressor on it. And that character compressor, depending on the kind of music, I would have some sort of idea in my head of how much character I want to impart. And if that is the character that that compressor does at minus three, then I'm going to want to try and get my vocal to sit in that minus three range for it. If it's, you know, minus 10, then I'm going to want to get my vocal to sit in that minus 10 range for it. Mind you, there's not a lot of stuff where I really want my vocal to be compressed minus 10, unless you're full on screaming, (laughs) which is a thing. I mean, hell, I did metal bands for years. And yeah, I'm pretty sure I hit minus 10 all pretty much every day. But at that point, you know, I've got something that's super low ratio, which is trying to control the volume a little bit, at which point then I still have a fader under my finger where I do the rest of the volume control. Mm -hmm. And then it's going into something where I'm trying to hit it in a way where it stays at roughly the same amount of compression anytime my singer is singing. And then I get that same kind of character added to it all the time. Interesting. I do the same thing on studio records, actually. I, I, I kind of dial in all my volume automation so that when it hits the vocal group, the compression sits in one range. And then if I need to change my actual vocal, actual volume, I can use that group fader to go up and down. Hmm. But if, if you've got your compressor kind of dialed in so that when it's hitting that minus three, your vocal is at a good, healthy level, you shouldn't really need to ride it up and down. Because even if you do push the vocal up into it a little bit, it is going to get louder. It's just not going to get louder by that much because you've got right. a compressor sitting there kind of pulling it back down. So, yeah, I know it's a weird way of doing things, man, but... No, everyone's got their, you know. I, and I no, do yeah. that in a lot of places. It's not just vocal. It's, it's on vocal. I do, again, I do the same thing on bass. I do the same thing on, you know, a couple other places. You know, yeah. Uh, what are your, some of your favorite compressors? Side Sidestep here for, for live sound specifically. Ooh, that's a tough one. Brendan? And, and, and I'm talking like ge- general, you know, not, not like very specific usage. Something that if you walk into a room and you saw one of these... And it doesn't have to be hardware. It could be a plug-in too, but something that you could be like, okay, I'm going to use this on some shit. Um, I mean, usually, Brennan, what's your answer? Well, I mean, like that any kind of like LA two A simulator plug-in. Cool. Like yeah, the CLA two A. Those, yeah, the CLA two A. Like those always help. They help out like most vocals I come across. I cool. seem to find. Yeah, it's something that does kind of an optical compression type. Yeah. And and those, I feel, add quite a bit of vibe and mojo when For you sure. get them into proper gain reduction. Yeah. They kind of really do thicken up a vocal and saturate it in a nice way. Yeah, uh, I would ba- say bass if, you're, guitar. If, you, 
What about for bass guitar, huh? Uh, no, I was just saying specifically the LA-2A, you know, that, that'll give some oh, growl yeah. to a bass, you know? Oh, I love an LA-2 on a bass. Yeah, yeah. it makes it nice and round. Mm-hmm. I, I find myself gravitating to them, too, on, like, cheaper consoles like the X32 and the M32 just because it, like, those consoles themselves kind of lack that character. And so uh-huh. when you drop that plug in on it, it. it, like, makes the, it just makes creates up for the vibe it. the better, yeah. Even if you, I'm not, even if I'm not compressing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, uh, just know, on I'm the an, channel. I'm in a similar, I'm on a similar boat, man. Um, it's, the, the problem is that my home rig, I've got a bunch of hardware and I use it kind of just because it's fun. And yeah. literally all my hardware is compressors. I think I've got something like 16 hardware compressors. Jesus. Just because they all have this a different kind of harmonic character. It's, it's exactly what we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. So I'm all over the place. I'm all over the map, but you know, exactly as Brendan said, you know, an LA-2 has got a really cool way of adding some sort of character. Mm-hmm. Um, but the compression control itself is pretty loose. You don't actually have that much great control of how much compression you're yeah. adding. You know, you've right. got that input knob and you've got a peak reduction. Yeah. So well, in, I would actually rather inside kind of LA, down the dynamic range before hitting it. Inside LA-2A, actually, if you unscrew the, the faceplate, there's kind of this hinge and it'll come down and there's a... Uh, you've got the high filter? I think there's a there's some sort of either detector or attack release little uh, thing in there. It's like a little screw. Yeah, yeah. And I believe on some of the plugins they have it too. Um, I have to look more yeah, into it's, this. Yeah, it's anyway, the pre-emphasis, wrong, right? Because I've got an LA2 sitting here right next to me. A real and, one? Um, I've got the pre-emphasis. Yeah, a real one. And oh, I've got the pre-emphasis knob wired to the outside. Oh, okay. So, yeah, um, okay. There you go. My, my understanding on that is that it's kind of an, a, a bit of an EQ curve going into the detector circuit. Okay. Now, I sh- probably shouldn't speak of that because I don't know that that's true. Um, <laughs> I, but what I do know is that uh, if I pin that knob all the way to the right, bass sounds amazing in it <laughs> right <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm good with that cool peace That's tight. <laughs> cool um you know i think i think as we we just spend you know an hour talking about compression alone uh i think this is a good point to pause for a moment and say it is too easy on digital consoles these days to add compression everywhere and what i see as one of the biggest downfalls of most new engineers on most shows Squash is over compressing stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Dynamics are beautiful, you know. You want to preserve. What do them you sometimes. guys do? What do you guys do to prevent yourself from getting there? And and like, how do you know where you're in that spot where you go? Oh, there's too much compression, too much stuff happening. Like, how do you? How do you guys watch out for it? <sighs> well, well, when you're dialing it in during sound check, click it on and off. If it's sounding better with it with it off or or it sounds shitty with it on, when you compare them side by side, then you're probably doing too much. You know, and if you're doing that, make sure they're level matched. I think all too often people put on a compressor and have the gain, uh, the makeup gain up a bunch so that every time you turn it on, it just sounds better. Mm-hmm. Right. Just because so it's So make sure you level match them as you do that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say this is something that, you know, it, it, it it, well, a good portion of it comes with experience, um, and you know, it goes back to that critical listening thing. Um, it, you know, it's hard to articulate what overcompression sounds like. Um, there's, uh, you know, again, those words pump. sounds like sausage. <laughs> sausage, yeah, sausage <laughs> can be good. I, I, you know, I'm not a vegetarian. Uh, sure. I, I like a good I breakfast like a good sausage. Italian sausage. Yeah, Italian. breakfast sausage Come is on. so good, oh. man. Um, These are all things I haven't had during quarantine. Why not? What's up? 
I don't know, man. All right. Well, I, I got to make up my sausage game. All right. I'll, keep going. I'll, I'll drop off some sausage for you. Um, you know, <laughs> that sounds so not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> this is becoming an R-rated podcast. Damn. Yeah. I think we got an E on a couple of the uh, previous episodes. Probably my fault. I apologize. <laughs> an E? Um, you guys ever yeah. use the Explicit. plugin? You ever heard of the plugin called Sausage Fattener? No, no. I've seen it, but I don't remember it. Like, what, what's the story it, with that? It, it was made by some like. EDM Is it a compressor? Group. Yeah, it's a compressor. It's like a compressor plugin. Uh, I I used to have it, but it doesn't work on my computer anymore. Um, Whoa! I can't remember the name of the EDM group, but it's one of those those ones that got really big, like before Skrillex and all that stuff, and they like made their own pl- plugin called the Sausage Fattener, which is like beef up your fucking beef like, beats. Pork it up. Beef up your beef. I prefer pork. But. Pork it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> all right. I feel like we, we totally interrupted you. I feel like oh, no, you're in the right. middle of something important. Um, yeah, no, I was no, just... Uh, not important? <laughs> no, not that important. No, I was just going to say the, you know, as far as des- descriptive words go, um, you know, the pumping and breathing thing. Um, you know, uh, over-compress something and and you'll hear what I'm talking about. Um and or or have like really fucked up attack and release uh, parameters, you know. Um, it, the I guess I'd, you know maybe one rule of of thumb is if not not even rule, but you know pe- people say if you can hear it working, then it's then it's you know then it's too much. But obviously that's not the case because I'd say usually that's the case, but it all depends, right? Well, I mean, you know, if if you can't hear it working, then why do you do it? <laughs> You know, like obviously, well, when someone says hear it working, they mean, you know, you can hear that it is some artifact that is not just sounds mm-hmm. like, uh, it doesn't just sound like music. Okay. You know I mean? Yeah. You okay. Instead Ar- hear an artifact. Artifact is a, is a good word. Artifact is a great word. If, if there are, art- if the artifacts, um, are distracting, how about that? If the artifacts are distracting uh, yeah. from, I could go you with know, that. then, then maybe it's a bit too much and back off. Um, yeah, it's tough, you know. Uh, uh, just listen. Uh, dynamics can be can be beautiful. It's the little it's the little uh, tendrils of the audio that kind of tickle your brain. You know what I mean? Um, uh, so you know, don't don't destroy them completely. <laughs> yeah, Brendan, is there anything in particular you do to make sure you don't end up, you know, over compressed and sausage fattened? <laughs> Wait, I thought that was good. I thought sausage was good. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah okay fine fine Whatever. fine get sausage fashioned no fashioned uh, um i can't i can't i can't think of any like specific <laughs> tactics besides the like double checking like turning it on and off and seeing if What's i'm better? just like overdoing it mm-hmm. i mean i just i guess i just hear it now when when it feels over compressed like i can hear it squishing it and it doesn't feel like well, exciting to me. I, I don't know. I, th- I think an easy I think an easy tactic that both of you guys probably use that you don't even know you use is how you determine which channels do and don't have compression, right? Because when you put a compressor on, you're putting a compressor on with a very specific purpose to compress this channel because of X that's happening on that channel. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I think right. it can be very easy to just go oh, well, here's a signal. I'm just going to put a compressor on it just in case. And right. then all of a sudden, you've got, you know, 60 channels that all have just-in-case compressors that are pulling it down by a little bit. And that's where you end up with this thing that doesn't really, you know, breathe dynamically or anything like that. Mm-hmm. That's So that, maybe that's just the true. awareness of... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to just say that's very true. Just, like, not putting it on 
unless you have a really specific purpose and you're like, oh yeah, this compre- doing compression is going to solve this problem or enhance it. Like having that in your mind before you yeah, go ahead and right. do it. Right. Do it with purpose. An easy example would be like a high gain guitar. You're already basically going through compression because the amp itself and the distortion circuit yeah. is compressing. Yeah. You know, if you just put one on there just for the sake of putting on one on there, well then it's not really necessary. Right. right. Whereas, uh, a base DI is a generally very dynamic signal. It can make sense to kind of pull that back together in order to keep the notes from popping out. Same with the vocal. You know, if a vocalist moves their microphone around a lot, that's something you want to kind of pull together. But you don't really need a, a compressor on a rack tom. You don't really need a compressor on a hi-hat. It doesn't really serve much of a purpose. Actually, to be honest, I could find, I could find a way that a hi-hat compressor could make sense, but I, let's not go there. <laughs> Advanced front of house mixing episode one. Yeah, the advanced front of house mixing is the one where I break every single rule that we've made during this whole podcast. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait for that. Yeah, it's going to be dangerous. But I think if you stick to the idea that, you know, putting a compressor on there should have a very specific purpose. And if you stick to that, you end up in a safer place. One thing I do is I don't compress on many channels, I compress on a lot of groups. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kick in and out might go to a kick group. That gets a touch of compression. Snare top and bottom go to snare group. That might get a touch of compression. Bass, DI, and mic go to a group. That gets, might get a touch of compression. My vocal goes to a group. That gets a touch of compression. Individual channels themselves, I don't know, on my, my 60 input show, there's probably four compressors on the inputs. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. a tiny bit more than that. Maybe, maybe, maybe six. Mm-hmm. Everything else kind of happens on groups. And that, for me, prevents me from just compressing everywhere and ending up with something that doesn't have dynamics anymore uh-huh yeah that makes sense you know especially especially same sources you know like yeah kicks snares like compressing them together makes a lot of sense you know yeah especially right. when like attack and release parameters yeah if you're combining Sorry, ahead, the mics you know like then it could get wonky if your compressor compressor settings are off you know for some reason if you're compressing snare top and snare bottom differently but if you group them together and then compress them. It's like one instrument being right, compressed right. in that way. And yeah. that's, a, that's a thing I personally think sounds better when compressed as a group and potentially EQ'd as a group and all those things as, as a pair. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that better. Same with the kick drum. I prefer the sound of it compressed as, as a pair, like in, in the group, huh. rather than individual compressors on each because they do react differently. And by having them react different, differently, I feel like it actually takes away some of the impact because the in mic might have a bit of impact that happens because of the way the attack responds to it. And the out mic, the impact might be different because the attack responds to it differently. Or maybe it's just the fact that there's this tiny bit of delay between when the sound hits the in mic versus the out mic and then the response of the compression. You know, all of that stuff, first of all, it's more complicated to put two comp- uh, two compressors on there. It's more for you to manage. Mm-hmm. It's harder for you to automate if you needed to, you know, put anything in a snapshot. But yeah. also, for me personally, I think it sounds better when it's one compressor on one kick drum, kind of sorting it all out. Same for snares. Yeah, I mean... Mm-hmm. And if if you are mixing in a in a venue that's all analog, you might not have enough compressors to compress everything. So right. I mean, I find myself a lot of the times just doing like a stereo group for like kick, snare, and toms, and then I'll just put a like a, a stereo compressor on that, mm-hmm. and that'll be my only compression on the drums. 
You know, that actually is an interesting one, you know, the stereo compressor thing. Do you guys, um, you know, and I guess this depends on, on what tools you have available to you, but do you guys always link left and right for stereo compressors? Uh, if I'm using them on a bus, if I'm using an actual stereo bus, then yeah. Um, yeah, typically. Uh, but it, it interesting, actually... You know, going going the other way with that that feature. Um, you know, you could you could do some sort of scenario where, like, if you did have you know, like like kick in and out, and then you had a stereo linkable compressor. You know, you could put one on each channel and link it so that it, they're reacting together. You know, even though it's two channels. Definitely. I don't know. You know. Yeah, that that, re that reminds me of back when I was doing you know analog days. Uh, I don't know, fifteen, twenty years ago, whatever, and and we only had you know three or two one sixty sixes. Yeah, and you know, even with the gates, you could link the two channels left and right yeah. and then use one of the gate knobs so that, you know, snare top can open snare bottom's gate or kick in can open kick out's gate. Yeah, with the kicks, can, especially in the exactly, gates. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly as you just described too because you can do the same thing with compression too yeah. and have it be triggered from one of them even though it's affecting both. Well, yeah. But, but, that, but that was a sidestep. If... If you're grouping like a stereo group of, let's say, like a horn section or something like that, I haven't tried this, but it was just a thought that popped into my head. If you put a stereo compressor that didn't have left and right linked, then you could Pan them control. Out. Yeah, if they're panned out, you could control the level on either side so that they yeah. get to the same, into the same range. Yeah, yeah if like, you know. So, if the trombone does, or if the trumpet's blasting on one side, but there's like. On one side, yeah. You know, but the so, sax. So, yeah. I, I almost never use linked stereo compressors, honestly. Even even on a master bus, my 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 system at home, my my touring, it's it's all unlinked. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason is exactly what you just said, right? Let's let's imagine, uh, and we'll take the easy example: a full stereo mix, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say a horn pops out on the left side, you know, because he's just he's got this one hit and he just hits hits it loud. If I have a stereo compressor, I pull down the whole mix for mm -hmm. that moment, right? Because it is a stereo compressor where both sides are linked, so even if the left side gets hot, the whole mix ducks for a moment, just to kind of pull it down. When I hear the whole mix do that, it suddenly gets a little bit more mono to me, just mm -hmm. for that moment, because <laughs> it, it kind of centers and then kind of gets back wide again. If I unlink left and right, left side will compress a bit, right side doesn't, it suddenly feels really wide for a moment. <laughs> and, and I actually prefer the way things breathe like that, I like it when it feels wider in these moments where there's a tiny bit of imbalance. Um, to me, that feels more exciting and more energetic than linking it and having it kind of collapse a bit. Now, obviously, there are scenarios where linking it makes more sense. You know, uh, uh, let's say a drum bus. You know, most of the time that compression is going to happen from kick and snare yeah, as opposed intense. to left and right things. So if you then split up left and right, you're going to kind of end up with a little bit of unevenness in your kick and snare. It's going to get a little bit funny. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there are certainly scenarios where that makes sense. I don't happen to use a compressor on my drum bus as a whole. It's just not a thing I do. But uh, on my mains bus, I keep it completely unlinked because I like the way it makes it feel wider and feels like there's more movement. That's, that's cool. I got to try that out. Yeah, so now that we've spent, you know, three and a half hours talking about snare drums and compression, <laughs> I feel like we actually have to cut this episode off now, I too. And I think we, we do. We weren't expecting to go... We weren't expecting to make this into this many episodes, but I guess, yeah, we've got a bunch more topics to jump into, and we haven't even touched them. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of added one today, too, so, yeah, let's do it. Sorry, guys. Yeah, don't, nothing to be sorry about, you know? We're being thorough here. 
And uh, it's kind of like no, how they, it's, the thing it's, is, it's it's like how they stretch the Hobbit out into three movies. Man, <laughs> damn! I really hated that that third one with that whole like slow motion pillow fight scene. Ugh. That pillow made me fight. so frustrated. Pillow fight? Damn. What pillow? Yeah. Fight? <laughs> Do you not remember this? You obviously I watched seen it the whole recently. Movie. I blocked it out of my memory again. Like the first time I watched it in theaters, <laughs> I like just I have amnesia, and then the I watched it. I. I watched it at home. I fucking rented it. I don't know why. I just wanted to like submit myself to torture again. <laughs> to kill four hours or whatever it is. The end of the second movie it's is four the hours worst, per movie. Though. It's so bad. Uh, okay, let's not let's not alienate our, our listeners that love these films. I, oh, no, they can yeah, go. I, they can I, go. I, I they do can not go. fuck with those films. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> and and I, and I will say, I actually think I th- I think I'm thinking of the last Lord of the Rings, not the Hobbit movies. I think it's the third Lord of the Rings where there's this weird pillow fight <laughs> oh, thing you, at the end that just made me really upset. Oh God, there, there's Blech. no pillow. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> let's move past this let's move past this okay all right um we'll catch you guys on the next episode and uh sorry for uh extending this one out again but uh it just means you get better content yeah yeah thanks for listening um and you know we've got that new facebook group so check us out on there come say what's up uh we'd love to hear your feedback you know if you have any topics you want us to talk about jump on there let us know yeah just uh search for lifetime boot camp on facebook groups and you'll find us yeah, and Boom. don't forget if you, if you like the show, go write a little review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, only Apple Podcasts. Don't do it on Spotify. Don't do it on Google. Well, they don't. Whatever. They podcasts. don't have don't it, do it on- Ryan. They don't have it on there. God. Oh, do you even listen to Whoops. podcasts? I just got schooled. <laughs> <laughs>